0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn East. In Acts 20.35, Jesus said that it is more blessed to give than to receive. For this four-week vision series at Sojourn East, we will be exploring what Jesus' way of giving looks like. We're calling this series, Serve Somebody. Each week we will look at a different aspect of the life of Christian service both inside and outside the church. The scripture comes from 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. Before we jump into this morning's scripture, will you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the the real gift it is to be able to gather together, to sing your praises, to be encouraged by one another, be encouraged by your word. I pray for our time and just these two short verses, which I think hold so much for us. We know your spirit is at work in our midst right now, and I pray that you would bring deep conviction where we need it. You bring comfort and encouragement where we're discouraged and lord there's there's just so much going on and there's there's so much in the world right now that that's overwhelming and discouraging and yet we gather knowing that you are in complete control and that you've made very precious promises and you're going to follow through on them and so pray that you would give us a great measure of faith and hope and vision as we think about who we are and where we want to go and who who you've called us to be. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, this morning we're closing out our series that we've entitled Serve Somebody. And the sermon I, I want to talk about today might have been better at the beginning, but I've had some personal things come up. Um, but I, I trust that God's going to use it here. Our heart behind this series is not just to recruit more servants for Sunday services or sojourn kids, although we do need more servants for both of those ministries, 100%. Um, Our heart, though, behind the series goes a lot deeper than that. Every August, we do a vision series where we really talk about who we are as a church and who we aspire to become. And this concept of... Being a people who show up eager to serve, eager to help, eager to do good, it goes very deep and it gets kind of at, really at the core of who I feel like God is calling us to be as his people. You know, I i spend a lot of time thinking about the church in America, and I've, I've talked with you guys about this before. Sometimes I fear I sound like a broken record, but... <laughs> When you look at all of the change that's transpired in the last 10 or 15 years, when you look at the statistics, the American church is in a pretty steady state of decline. And I mean, if you put it on a chart, it's going down, and the projections in the years to come are the church is going to shrink more and more. Uh, The early data we're seeing is that COVID led to a 30% decrease in church attendance in America, something that people were expecting would take 15 or 20 years took 18 months or less. Then you add to that the the evangelical hubris of bigger, faster, and better that's become such a source of great shame for us as countless scandals and wickedness continue to come to light in the midst of the evangelical church. And you think about even with COVID, here we have this great international crisis, global crisis. And people didn't flock to the church For help, for hope, for healing, they gave up on it. Now, I know that seems bleak. I'm not panicking. God's good. He builds his church. He's been doing it for 2,000 years strong. He will continue to do it. What I want, though, is I want to be a part of it. I don't want to pass me or us by. I don't want to be a generation that's just left in the wilderness. I want us to continue to be asking, okay, Lord, what is it about the way that we've done church here in the West that's brought us to this place? What might you be calling us to to help move us forward, get us out of this place that we're in? How do we, I mean, maybe this is just being too frank. We could just do things the way we've always done them here, and I will probably have a job until I decide to retire. But I'm not just thinking about me. I'm thinking about our children and the next generation. I'm thinking about the church we're handing down. And insanity is doing the same thing again and again and again and expecting different results. And I wonder what things need to change in the church. And as I've been wrestling with that for years, uh, I've really been drawn to study the history of the early church from the book of Acts right up until Constantine named Christianity the state religion in 1313. And I'm a history guy, and I realize a lot of people aren't nearly as intrigued by history. I will do my best to make the history intriguing because it is. It's fascinating. But as you study the early church, the questions that emerge again and again and again, every book eventually asks the same question. How did a group of blue-collar fishermen, an ostracized tax collector, a zealot, a formerly demon-possessed woman and former prostitutes grow from a few dozen people hiding out in a basement to five or six million people in 250 years? Any, Any thoughtful person, Christian or not, has to look at the history there and say, what happened? How, how, how did this group of nobodies end up turning the Roman Empire on its head? And there are a number of things that we know it wasn't. One, it wasn't their social influence. The early church didn't have a lot of money, or political connections, it wasn't physical force. Sometimes religions grow by the sword. You know, Islam grew rapidly at the beginning, but it did so through forced conversions, a sword at your neck. Do you believe? Do you convert? The early church, they were nonviolent. And for the first three or 400 years of the church, they were committed to nonviolence. They were a community of forgiveness and non-retaliation. So it wasn't influence, it wasn't force. It wasn't because they promised people a life filled with health, wealth, and happiness. I mean, read the epistles in the New Testament. So many of them are like, you are going to suffer if you follow Jesus. And that's because from about the time Peter wrote this letter, until Constantine became emperor, Christians were living under a constant threat of persecution. It was extremely costly to become a Christian. There were no, you know, under the sun benefits of being a Christian. To be a Christian could cost you your job, your standing in society, your friendships, your freedom, even your very life. So it wasn't Great promises. And lastly, it wasn't because they had really dynamic worship services. And it wasn't because they had this like amazing evangelical strategy. They were seeker-sensitive and inviting people in. Alan Kreider, who's a historian on the early church, he writes this. He says, the early Christians, this is from about the time Peter wrote this letter, the early Christians did not engage in public preaching. It was too dangerous. The early Christians had no missions boards. They did not write treaties about evangelism. The Great Commission, so central in the missionary movement in late Christendom, was hardly mentioned by the Christians in the early centuries. After Nero's persecution in the mid-first century, the churches in the Roman Empire closed their worship services to visitors. Deacons stood at the door, serving as bouncers, checking to see that no unbaptized person, no lying informer, could come into the private space, the enclosed garden of the Christian community. They knew if people came in, that meant that they were probably going to eventually be arrested and shut down. And so you hold all of those together. How did the church grow? They're not out preaching in the streets at this point. What was it? What was it that caused people to lay down great jobs and great social standing? Comfort, influence. In order to follow the way of Jesus, that caused the church to multiply in staggering numbers. Well, in his book, Destroyer of the Gods, Larry Hurtado, who is a New Testament scholar and a church historian, he argues that it wasn't the early church's relevance that made them attractive. It wasn't their relatability. It wasn't, hey, we're just like you guys, with a little bit extra. Instead, it was their distinction, their uniqueness that they were a very peculiar people in the eyes of the world, and they actually embraced that identity of being peculiar. It's a hard word for me this morning. And he lays forth a number of things, five in particular, but there's more. Five things that made the early church distinct, and I want to walk through them really quickly. The first is the early church was multi-ethnic and multi-racial, at a time when society was not. In a world of strict social hierarchy, the early church came in and there were Jews and Gentiles and Greeks and barbarians and Romans. It was like New York City when there was New York, no New York City. And they all gathered together. It was a strange thing for people to see because you, you would never see that. So they were multi-ethnic, multi-racial, number one. Number two, they were comprised of both the rich and poor and they were absolutely committed to caring for the poor. And so again, this is where the hierarchy comes into place. Where, where are you in the social ladder? And the early church had people, not, not very many, but people at the top of the ladder and a whole bunch of people at the bottom of the ladder. And they gathered together, and they ensured that everyone had food on the table and a roof over their head, that their widows were cared for. The, the pagan emperor Julian once remarked with both, I think, uh, anger and admiration when he was talking about the Christians. He says, they care not only for their own poor, but ours as well. Like, how dare they? Who do these, these Christians think they are? Multi-ethnic and racial, rich and poor. Number three, they stood firmly against abortion and infanticide. And something that was pretty common back in that day um, is that if you were a Roman family and you had a child that you didn't want, oftentimes it was because you had a girl and you wish you had a boy, but maybe the child had some physical imperfection or maybe you just didn't feel like raising the child— What was done, and this was done by people who would be considered socially acceptable, they would take those those children and they would leave them out at the garbage dump to die of exposure or to be captured by slavers. Not only did the Christians not practice this, the Christians went and rescued those children and raised them as their own. And that's why the early church was more females than males because they were rescuing so many of these children, these quote-unquote unwanted children, and raising them as their own. And number four, the early church was radically committed to God's design for human sexuality. They believed and obeyed God's call that marriage is between one man and one woman until death do us part. And that's strange in our day. It was even stranger back then, especially for the men. You see, back in that day, women needed to be faithful to their husbands, but husbands, and you can read about this, it's disgusting, but Men could go around and have sex with whoever they wanted, even if they're married, as long as they're of a lower social standing. And they would, and they'd write about it. And the Christians refused to live like that. Women felt empowered and respected in Christian marriages in a way that they were not being respected or honored in the Roman world. And then lastly, the early church was radically committed to nonviolence, non-retaliation, and forgiveness. When they would face persecution, they wouldn't fight back. When they were mistreated or martyred, when they were taken into the arena to be fed to lions, they would sing hymns together. And Tim Keller, in his book, How to Reach the West Again, he notes that if you look at those and you take the first two distinctives, that they're multiracial and they, they cross socioeconomic lines. So if you just take those two, it seems like the early church was socially liberal. It was like, And then you take the next two standing against abortion and standing up for God's design for marriage, and it makes them seem like they were socially conservative. And then you take the last one, that they were committed to nonviolence and non-retaliation, that just makes them sound downright un-American. And so what happened is you had these people that, just like it would be in our day, and that day they didn't fit in any categories. And it was annoying and it was frustrating and they were growing and the Romans viewed them as a threat, but when real accusations, what, what have we done wrong? They couldn't actually put a finger on it, other than you are strange and you're different, and you are marching to the beat of a different drummer and we don't like it. And you're going around saying Jesus is Lord, Caesar is Lord. Cut it out, knock it off. And yet God honored it. It honored, God honored their distinctiveness. You can read, it was that distinctiveness that drew people in and caused them to say things like, they alone know the right way to live. And I wonder, I wonder what that might say to us as God's church at this moment in time, this place in history. And I even wonder, like, where did, those were some implications, and some of those are really clearly laid out in Scripture, like marriage, but, The others were just the Christians working out what they had been taught. And I don't know if there's a better place than here in 1 Peter to kind of get an idea of what was the Scripture that informed them and that led them to go and be in the world in this way. So we're going to walk through this text. It's not very long. And then we're going to talk about a couple of implications for us, and we're going to wrap up. But starting with this text, Peter writes, Dear friends, he's writing to fellow believers, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. Other churches put it as, I urge you as sojourners and strangers. And if you didn't know it, this is where we got our name for our church. He's talking to Christians and he's saying, you are foreigners and exiles, you're sojourners and strangers. He's using the language Abraham used in Genesis 23 when he was looking for a burial plot for Sarah among the Hittites. And what he's saying is not like we, you know, we're, we're native Canadians and now we're living in the United States. What he is saying is our identity as believers in Jesus Christ means that here on this earth we recognize this world its not our home in its current state. And we live with this deep and abiding awareness that we have a citizenship. Yes, we might be citizens of America or any nation or state, but our ultimate citizenship, where we actually belong, is in the kingdom of God. The early church knew that life here on this earth is filled with pain and hardship and brokenness, but they knew that God had promised us life beyond the grave, a future home that cannot be shaken. And so what this did for the early church, it didn't lead them, for the most part, to to retreat into enclaves of like, well, we know a better world's coming, so let's just like escape from the world until God comes back. What it did is it actually led them to go engage with the world and to go live lives filled with risk. But they knew it wasn't all that risky to engage with the world because they knew, as the author of Hebrews put it, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. They lived in the world, but they did so in a very different way than most people do. You see, we... If you view life right now and however many years you have left or you think you have left, if you think this is all there is, man, it's so tempting to just live for yourself. It's so tempting to say, like, this is my one shot. I want to suck the marrow out of life. I don't care so much about the others. I want to look out for me and mine. I want to achieve all of my list, my bucket list, and everything else, which is fine. Do your thing. But if you actually realize that this world as it currently is is just a shadow of the world that God is bringing about. That doesn't lead you to retreat. It actually leads you to engage into a life filled with risk because you know it's not all that risky because we're, we're playing with house money. And I, I need to explain that because I shared that at the earlier service and people were concerned. I've never been to a casino in my life, no judgment if you have. But the concept of playing with house money is if you're someone influential, you might show up to the casino and they'll give you a $1,000 worth of chips. And you can go play and risk and maybe you'll lose it. But what did you really lose? Everything you had was given. And in the same way, the early church knew we can go risk. We can go be fed to the lions. Some ways they viewed it as a badge of honor. Like, kill us. That's fine. We get to go be with Jesus. Persecute us. That's fine, because then we get to become more like Jesus. We don't belong here. There's a a letter written in the second century called the Epistle to Diognetus, which described the early church and described how this understanding that we are strangers and exiles here, how it came to bear on the everyday lives. This was probably written around 130 A.D. In that epistle... We read, Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country, language, or custom. For for nowhere do they live in cities of their own. They don't retreat into enclaves. Nor do they speak some unusual dialect, which sometimes the Christian Church in America does, uh nor do they practice an eccentric lifestyle. While they live in both Greek and barbarian cities, as each one's lot was cast and follow the local customs and dress and food and other aspects of life, at the same time, they demonstrate the remarkable and admittedly unusual character of their own citizenship. They live in their own countries, but only as aliens. They participate in everything as citizens, but endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign country is their fatherland, and every fatherland is foreign to them. The early Christians could be at home anywhere, but they knew that they would be at home nowhere on this earth in its present state. I just think that's so interesting to think about. They didn't dress different. If you took a picture, which they didn't have cameras, but you know, you lined people up back then, you wouldn't be able to say, oh, those are the Christians and those are not. They didn't have bracelets or badges or things like that. They they looked the same. And yet everyone knew they were different because their lives were so peculiar. Because they, they kind of lived like they, they didn't worry about the same things that everyone else worries about. They didn't obsess over the same things that everyone else obsesses over. The letter continues, they marry like everyone else and have children, but they do not expose their offspring. They don't do that practice of letting their children die of exposure. They share their food, but not their wives. They are in the flesh, but do not live according to the flesh. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. And That's where I think one of the great challenges that the early church faced was one of the great gifts. They were not tempted at all to think, this world is our home. Like Rome stood against them. The powers that be stood against them. And so there was no temptation of like, oh, Rome's kind of our home because it's a God-fearing nation. They didn't have to face that. They knew these people are weird and wicked and worship false gods. We do not belong. The challenge for us, though, is we live in a society that has been shaped by Judeo-Christian values. And we do have some sense that, well, what has God done to bring about in our country and And I think a lot of us were raised with this notion that, like, America is home for Christians. I'm not going to get into all that. I'll let you guys work out the implications for yourselves. What I will say, though, is the rise of Christian nationalism, which is real, and we are seeing, I think it is a very real threat to the flourishing of Jesus' church. And it's not because America is some horrible, awful, no-good country— You know, I heard someone once say America's the worst country in the history of the world, except for every other country in the history of the world. Uh, I thank God for being born here. Absolutely. What I worry about, though, is when our loyalties get skewed and our priorities get out of whack. And we start to think and wonder, like, what's our mission? Is our mission to preserve the Constitution or to advance the gospel? And when those are at odds with one another, which one wins out and which one plays out? What I'm concerned about is the language and the posture I see among Christians that really look at the world through the lens of us or them instead of us for them. What I'm really worried about is that our loyalty— to this nation, which will one day be reduced to dust like every other nation in the history of the world. That supersedes our loyalty to the kingdom of God. And this week I saw a right-wing commentator, and I'm just picking it on the right today, I'll pick on the left sometime in the future. Um, they posted a picture of, you guys probably saw it, of 600-plus Afghani refugees crowded into a C-17 who were escaping Afghanistan to come to the United States. He posted the picture, and he posted a caption with it. He said, would you want this plane landing in your city? Implication being, would you want these dirty Middle Eastern people coming into your nice picket-fence American town? I don't know how you'd answer that, but I can tell you how the early church would answer it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Come on. 600 people, many of whom never heard the gospel, they want to come and live among us. Amen. What can we do to care for them? How can we serve them? I mean, when you study the early church, these people really took the words of Jesus seriously. They took the parable of the Good Samaritan seriously. I was reading just two days ago about really poor Christians who were welcomed in someone who's even poor. And so the really poor people only got to eat two or three times a week, but the really, really poor person could only afford a meal once or twice a week. And so the somewhat poor people, they would actually just forego eating for three or four days to make sure that the poorest of the poor would have something to eat. And I just don't know if that's true, generally speaking, of the American church. I think for us, giving up lunch seems like a huge sacrifice. Early church, they knew we were sojourners. they had embraced this new identity. They'd also embraced a new battle, which we see in the second part of verse 11, when Peter says, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. I wonder, I wonder if we were to think, who, who are the enemies of Christ in our day? Where is the war that we need to fight? What's the battleground for that? The early church, they knew that the, the battleground where the fight needed to happen was in our own souls. Because they knew that when Jesus saves us, that doesn't automatically make us holy and perfect that he gives us a new heart, but there's still the old flesh, as Paul calls it, alive and well. There's still sinful desires that wage war against our soul. And if we do not destroy them, they will destroy us. So he's talking about sexual sin here, sure, but he's also talking about greed and pride and self-righteousness, entitlement, covetousness. The life of a disciple of Jesus is not filled with finding all the problems in the world and naming them and telling people how to fix it. The life of a disciple actually begins with looking at your own heart and saying, what's waging war against my soul? I mean, the early church, they were nonviolent towards others, but ruthless in their confrontation of their own sin. And so Peter's saying, remember, this isn't your home. You have a real battle to fight. It's in your own soul, right? We all know this, right? We all know that we all have these desires in us that aren't good. They're the old self, that they will destroy us, destroy relationships. And that our primary energy, when we think about we're going to bear arms, it's against our own soul, against the own wickedness we all have. And then he says this line, verse 12. so good. Peter says... This is the evangelistic strategy of the early church. He says, live such good lives. That word could actually be translated as beautiful, fair, even shapely. Live such beautiful lives among the pagans, and pagans was not a derogatory term in that day. It would be bad if we went around calling everyone pagans, but that's actually how Romans identified themselves in their religion. Live such beautiful lives among the Romans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong. There were a lot of accusations thrown at the early Christians. They were accused of being cannibals because they would gather together to eat the body of Christ and drink the blood of Christ at communion. They were accused of incest because husband and wife would refer to each other as brother and sister. In our day... We'll be accused of doing wrong. We'll be accused of being of bigotry or hatred when we honor God's design for human sexuality. We seek to be faithful to his word of how we view and treat other people, even live such beautiful lives that though you're accused of doing wrong, they may see your good, beautiful deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. so interesting was in the quote I read earlier, but it's something I saw again and again is the early church, they didn't have like evangelism classes. How do you go share your faith? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. I'm just stating what what is that after Paul took the gospel to the Gentiles, the minute persecution came, the early church did not say, all right, what's our strategy? They didn't have missiologists sitting down with whiteboards. How are we going to reach this people group next? At least we don't have any evidence for that. The missionary strategy of the early church was live such good, beautiful lives that have been shaped and conformed by the cross of Jesus Christ that people are going to be confounded by you. They're going to say horrible things about you, but they're also going to be very intrigued. They're also going to say they alone know the right way to live. Peter, he doesn't say refute accusations or defend yourself. Just let your life live a beautiful life and let that be your defense. And we know who Peter got this from. He got it from Jesus, Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus said, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and then put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand. It gives light to all the house. In the same way, Christian, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There's no talk about gaining influence or power. There's talk about living a beautiful life that's filled with good works and letting other people see. And I think one of the reasons for the church's decline in the Western world is that in our attempt to be relatable and relevant, we've lost our distinctiveness. And in in our attempt to be really clear about what the gospel is, we've kind of thrown out some of the implications of the gospel. What I mean is we, we want to be really clear we're saved by grace. God doesn't save us because we're great people. But sometimes when we talk about that in the church and as Christians, we make it seem like, yeah, you're not saved by good works and good works don't really matter in the Christian life instead of seeing that Jesus talked about good works all the time, and it's a necessary implication of following him. Too many of us were sold a faith that someone once memorably called vampire Christianity. It's a Christianity where we want Jesus' blood, but we don't want his lordship. Just give us your blood and save us. I served in student ministry for years. I'm sure some of you experienced things like that, and God can use all things, but that doesn't mean we should keep doing it. Okay, but what I saw in student ministry is basically we're all sinners and we're gonna die and any one of us could die right now on the spot. God could strike you dead. When you die, what do you want to do? Where do you wanna go? Do you want to go to heaven to be with grandma and grandpa and mom and dad? There's a big house there with lots of food and big yard, you can play football. (laughs) Streets of gold. Or do you wanna go to hell where you're gonna be tormented for eternity where fire is just going to consume you but never truly consume you and you're going to be miserable and all alone which do you want all right now everyone close your eyes bow your head who wants to go to heaven you know the hands go up and what we leave out is Jesus Christ came and he said I am building a kingdom and I am building a certain kind of people And if you want to call me Lord, you actually have to attempt to do what I say. That you can't just say, well, I believe in Jesus and that covers me, and then not actually take his teaching and his yoke upon you. Dallas Willard, he says this, Most problems in contemporary churches can be explained by the fact that members have never decided to follow Christ. I'm not wagging my finger at you, stating what I see in the church, the church, what I see in our church, what I see in my own heart at times. I think we've lost this notion that the way to real life, is found not just in believing Jesus, but in obeying him. Not just trusting that he died for our sins, but trusting that he does have the words of eternal life, and his instructions for how we are to live in this world is the path to flourishing even in the face of persecution. I think we struggle to believe things like we should love our enemies and we should pray for those who persecute us. Forgiveness, goodness gracious, we do not forgive. We forgive with a whole lot of caveats. And then Jesus comes along and he's like, I don't care, seven times 70, 70 times 70. You just, you forgive. If you don't forgive, he says, your heavenly father won't forgive you. Jesus says, if the Romans came along, (laughs) I do love America so much, but I'm just thinking, guys, Americans, it's so absurd. So the Romans are oppressing you and they can force you to walk with them and carry their swords and their weapons and their gear for a mile. And Jesus is like, when they do that, just just re-up for another mile. And when you get insulted, turn the other cheek. And when people oppress you and demonize you, just take it. It's okay. Jesus called us to a life of love and service and trust. And the goodness of God. This is where servanthood, it's, it's not just something we do. And when we say serve somebody, when we put forward a call to serve, it's not us just saying, man, if we don't get some more servants for us too, we're going to really be struggling. It's us saying, who do we want to be and how do we want to move forward in our society? What witness do we want to bear to the world? And my desire is that when people look at sojournees they would say, I don't totally get them. I don't agree with everything. They're total fundies when it comes to sexuality, but they do a lot of good in this city. They do a lot of good. I want people to think of us and say they're always just trying to help. And it's not, you know, we thought that there was like a strings attached deal and it was like, this is what, but they just actually, they just show up and help. Jesus. He talks about this posture of servanthood. He says, you know, those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is Jesus just saying the same thing that he said uh, in Acts 20 that Jonathan preached a couple weeks ago. It truly is better to give than to receive. And the path to greatness is found through service. And so I I don't. I had a couple people say, "Can you give some really practical applications?" And I would love to, um, but but the practical application is not go do random acts of kindness in your neighborhood. Although I would love it if you did that, like go mow your neighbor's grass. That's that's great. I think the really practical application is to do the hard, necessary work of self-examination. What do I truly believe? What have I believed wrongly about the way of Jesus? What what did I once believe? that maybe I don't believe so much anymore? Here's a practical thing. When I start talking, you know, we, many of you know. I won't be too self-revealing here. But in my walk with Jesus, I know. Like, there are sometimes just areas of your life, maybe it's sins you're engaging in or relationships you're avoiding or problems you don't, that you're just like, I'm not, I'm not going to address that. I wonder what that might be for you. wonder what area of your life right now is keeping you from living beautifully, as Peter says. What habits, what relationships. And I think it's the time for us to really do soul searching as a church. We're not going to stop talking about this. Our elders went on a retreat. One of the big takeaways is we want to be a church that does good in this city. Tim Keller once said years ago, he said, if your church disappeared overnight, you know, we don't believe in the rapture in that sense, but just say we got raptured, would anyone in the city know or care? Would anyone outside of your church even know or care? Like my desire, our desire, with all that God has given us, is that if you pulled us out of the city, it would be like tearing the very fabric of the city because we're so engaged and we are doing such good here, and we are bearing witness to the greatness of our God. So to keep that in mind, we move to the Lord's Supper. And this is always such a good reminder, especially after a passage like this. We're not saved by our works. God didn't say, who's the best among you? Okay, I'm going to save you. Who's got it all together? I'm gonna... He came and said, you're all broken so broken that my body has to be broken for you and my blood has to be shed for your sins. And so communion is a time to remember that God loves us because that's who he is, not because of who we are. And he saves us, but then he calls us to embody that love to the watching world. And so if you're here and you're a Christian, I encourage you to take part in the Lord's Supper. If you're here and you haven't put your faith in Christ, I encourage you to do that. He gave his life to save you, and he knows the way to real life. And I pray for all of us that we might seek God's face and say, Lord, what do you want to do in me and in us? How what might we bear witness to the world, not just through our words, but through our lives, how good you are in what you're doing. With that in mind, let's pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east.